everybody. Yeah, this is Tom Hunt. Um, I'm up at the Haskell Ag Lab in Northeast Nebraska, and today I'll be talking about what's new in entomology. Um, as you know, with entomology, there's a few things that you can plan on, like if you're growing corn on corn, corn rootworm issues and whatnot, but a lot of different things pop up. It's kind of like emergency room stuff. However, there are a few things that we can do to maybe guess guesstimate what might happen in this year, and that's basically looking at what happened last year and uh, kind of picking things out that we might think that might reoccur. They're happening broadly. And so the goal of this is also that and also to go over that and also for participants to understand certain aspects of biology needed for management of insects in these agronomic crops in, uh, that we had seen in two, uh, 2020, or at least get some keys of where you go because I can't cover, you know, one slide I could cover biology of a particular insect in the whole time. So we'll go pretty quick along here. The first is seed corn maggot. Um, seed corn maggot is, uh, has been, last year it was significant in a variety of fields, at least in Eastern Nebraska. Um, these insects are attracted to, you know, or dying or uh, decaying organic matter and, you know, plant residue and manure, particularly right after things are applied or right after things are, are, are tilled in. The larvae feed on the germinating seeds of both seed uh, corn and soybeans, more, more of an issue typically in corn, but last year we did see significant uh, numbers of soybean fields that had problems with seed corn maggot. Um, and basically degree day models can help guide decisions on planting date if you have the ability to do just planting date to avoid periods with high larval abundance. Now we'll have these kind of degree day models, uh, we'll talk about them in the crop watch when they're coming out. One thing to remember, it's an insect that likes it early and cool. So the, you know, the lower threshold we use isn't like 50 degrees, it's 39 degrees. So you will want to look at a, a degree day model specifically for seed corn maggot to make these kinds of decisions. Now, insecticide seed treatments are typically effective, except when there are very high densities of seed corn maggots. And like last year, the, you know, the uh, soil temperatures, we had some beans that would pop up and just set there because it got really cool, cool and wet. And so that I think contributed to why we saw a lot into the beans. And then if you do have uh, put in fresh, you know, or if you do till, till organic matter in or put manure in the soil, um, if you could wait at least two weeks after this fresh material is put down and incorporated, that will help because usually the maggots, will, the adults will lay in that if they're there and then the life cycle will run pretty quick. And then so if you wait two weeks, you should avoid any uh, significant damage. Now, soybean gall midge, I'm really not going to cover this very much because Justin just did. I just want to reiterate uh, Eastern Nebraska issue, uh, most abundant on the field edges. The, uh, most of the time, the orange larvae are under the epidermis at the base of the plant. The main thing I want you to remember, though, is that website, soybeangallmidge.org. That's where we kind of centralize most of our information and, and, and things like that for this particular insect. But it is a growing problem in Eastern Nebraska. Um, last year, it was big issue in kind of central East Nebraska from about the Elkhorn and over by Wakefield down south um, through, uh, through Lincoln. So another insect that is on the horizon, something new. Now defoliators, these are ones we talk about, you know, a lot. Um, it is the insect injury that people see the most and kind of notice early. Um, and we have a lot of them. The uh, thing here is we have different insects. So that means they kind of manifest themselves in different ways. Um, the three at the top there, yellow woolly bat, uh, bear and the skipper and the cloverworm or, or lepidopterous caterpillars. Um, you know, if you have kind of good growing conditions, wet growing conditions in the spring where you get good lush growth and it dries out a little bit so you don't get fungal pathogens, these can really build up. 
Usually most of these defoliators are in a mixture. So there's several different ones. And so we use those kind of combined uh, thresholds, uh, defoliation thresholds. Every once in a while, there can be individuals. Um, you know, woolly bear every once in a while can do that, be an individual pest that causes damage that is the main insect in there defoliating. Um, but a lot of times it's a mixture. You have here the bean leaf beetle. That's one that in the spring early and then in the middle of summer is a defoliator that usually joins a mixture. It's not a, a, the, pro, the defoliator problem in itself. But then, in, and then in the, it's a little different that in the pod forming stages, that's what you want to worry about rather than defoliation because less of them can cause you a problem eating pods than the defoliating. So it's a little bit different there. Of course, grasshoppers are also different. Um, they usually start off outside the field, unless it, sometimes we can see them in no-till fields, but usually on the outside of the field and then they move in, you got to get them early. They have thresholds unto themselves, although they can also be part of a group of defoliators. Our newest one is like the Japanese beetle, which I've seen in central east Nebraska uh, grow quite a bit. Um, it can be very dramatic, um, particularly on the tops of the plant. And then, of course, other insects, including something like the southern corn rootworm, which blows up from the south, can be a defoliator in soybeans. Um, our th thresholds you've probably seen before, um, these are uh, uh, general thresholds, and they can be used for a group of defoliators or, or for individual defoliators. Um, in the vegetative stages, of course, the plant is more tolerant, so we typically say 30%, and I would say 30%, give or take 5 or even 10%, depending on how well your canopy is developing, how big your plants are. And then the reproductive stage is where it's really a, uh, 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 the issue more often. Um, and that's a 20% threshold if you got 20% defoliation. And again, I would raise it five, you know, five either way, depending on the size of the canopy. If you've got a big lush canopy, it can take more defoliation. So that's the type of things you want to look at. The problem we have sometimes, particularly estimating defoliation, is folks often overestimate. And this is something, particularly if you're new to it, you do. Once you get a handle on it, though, you can do pretty good. So we have some tools available for people to uh, uh, use. Uh, for this type of, for uh, checking out defoliation. And one is this standard estimating defoliation in soybeans. Now this is a, a NEB guide, so you can get all this information if you go to, you know, the uh, entomology page and extension page at UNL. Um, CropWatch, we always put it in there also. So uh, it's, it's a basic plan. You always want to look at all parts of the canopy, top, middle, and bottom, because all these insects, some of them feed at different levels. And it's often too easy. You see the defoliation at the top, it looks bad. And so you make a kind of an overestimation of what the defoliation is. And really, you need to estimate the whole plant, all the nice green leaves, so from top to bottom. Because there are some plant insects, like uh, soybean looper, that actually do a lot of defoliation um, uh, uh, in the kind of middle or even lower in the canopy. So you do want to look at all areas. And one way to do that is to remove some leaves from the top, middle, and bottom, kind of have them separate. Um, and then you uh, uh, make your estimations um, on each of these, looking at, you know, basically a tri you pick a trifoliate, you take out the highest and lowest damaged leaf of that trifoliate, and you use your estimation on that one remaining leaflet of that trifoliate. You do it several times. 10 plants a location is good. And you, you get, so you do that for the top, get your estimation, and you do the same thing in the middle. And then you do the same thing at the bottom. And as you probably know, as you get into the middle or bottom, you might have one, two of the leaflets without defoliation or so. So, you know, that's why you have to really make your all plant estimation. You repeat this um, uh, several times in the field and uh, develop your average. And again, it's a 30% give or take a little bit for vegetative stage, 
and about 20%, um, give or take a little bit for the reproductive stage in soybean. I think one important thing is also to remember this is know which insects you're dealing with. Um, Lepidoptera uh, life cycle is important to understand. I had last year, a couple guys, consultants call me and uh, they were about ready. One guy was about ready to treat, but he, then he started to see a little bit of disease. And so he called me and he was going to, and he held off. It was a good thing he did because two day, two, three days later, the caterpillars all developed disease, didn't have to spray. He saved a spray application. Uh, had another guy call me over by uh, Pender and he didn't think he needed to spray. He had a fair amount of defoliation, but his caterpillars at that time were quite big. And so basically they were about done feeding. So he decided to hold off, didn't spray. And that was a good decision for him. But you know, then on the office side, I had a fellow down near uh, 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 Pilger. Um, he had them, but he had them. They were small, no sign of disease. And he decided to spray and I agreed he should. He had the threshold, he was getting to the thresholds. And uh, I think he made a good decision to do that. So, you know, it's not just seeing the insects. You do need to see them, make sure they're there defoliating, but you also need to know a little bit about each of these insects. Now, Dectes stem borer, that remains with us. Um, that's starting to move a little further north and probably further east, it's expanding its range. This one is difficult. We don't have a really good method for managing this, particularly with insecticides. Um, the adult comes out and lays eggs over a, a significant period of time in the, in the middle, early, you know, in the spring into through summer. And so it's hard to target that particular time when it's laying eggs. You know, it lays its eggs in a little, uh, in, the, in the petiole of a bean plant. And they, then the larvae bore up and down the petiole and then down through the stem. And they uh, stay down, end up down at the bottom of the stem. They overwinter, they kind of plug, make a little frass plug and overwinter down there near or a little below the soil line. And what happens is these plants are brittle at that place. They kind of girdle it on the inside. And so what happens is um, you get some wind at harvest and it knocks the plants over. So really, if you think you have them, the best thing to do is schedule that field for early harvest so that you can reduce losses from stem breakage and lodging. Um, so that's one that's still receiving research and Bob Wright works on this insect. He's an entomologist, actually he's been talking after I am. Um, so that's, uh, you know, Dectes stem borer, something to keep, keep an eye out, mostly towards, not in my area, the Northeast so much, but in the East, uh, you know, in the East Central and Southeast and South Central Nebraska, particularly, that's where we're seeing that. We used to call it a Kansas pest, but now it's Nebraska pest too. Now, Western mean cutworm. Um, this is another one that in some people, it, uh, you know, in my area out towards Holt County and West, it's something you have to deal with about every year. Um, in my area near Concord in the extreme Northeast, it's one of those pests that we see, you know, once every, it used to be once every five to seven years, then we had about 10 years of it being every year. Now it's back to a, a pattern where we don't see it so much in my particular area near uh, Carroll, about Wayne, Nebraska. But once you get West by 80, Highway 81 and going west, you start to see it a lot more often in corn. And then of course out by Scotts Bluff, uh, Scotts Bluff and North Platte and uh, areas west, south central, uh, Clay Center area, you'll see them at higher numbers and more frequently there. Now this one is, it's last few years been quite abundant in the western part, uh, western and central part of the Nebraska. Again, we have degree day models that can help you target when to start sampling for egg masses. This is kind of useful because you know you got a lot to do. So it's nice to look at those because uh, that way you don't have to waste time looking uh, for every particular insect. So use that degree day model to trigger when you need to start um, uh, scouting for this. We do have those types of information on the uh, uh, 
in the crop wash, we put that out every year. And then we have economic thresholds and uh, for this, and you really do have to have proper timing because you know when this insect at first, when the larvae are in the world, you can't get to them, and then once they get down to the ear and into the ear tip, you can't get to them with you know traditional foliar insecticides. So timing is important with uh, uh, foliar insecticide use to manage these. But we do have some BT hybrids. However, in a lot of areas, cryF is just so reduced it's not really uh, effective and something I'd recommend for it. Um, although hybrids with the VIP3A protein are still very effective and uh, in Nebraska. So those, uh, those particular ones are to use if you're really targeting this insect with a BT product. Okay. Now, rootworms. Rootworms, again, are always, uh, you know, they're here. If you have corn on corn, particularly regularly, you know corn rootworms. They continue to be a problem. Um, they have developed resistance to a lot of the uh, uh, hybrids out there that contain to thry the cry three protein in BT corn. Um, and so in these areas that just isn't sufficient to manage these pests. Um, resistance to bifenthrin has been, has been noticed and um, observed is present mostly uh, in Southwest Nebraska. So that's something to think about. We use bifenthrin a lot in a lot of different scenarios. And so this has led to some issues with some insects. Um, and one of them is corn rootworms. Um, IPM approach is needed really any, you know, you need to do an IPME approach to really continually and regularly um, manage this pest. Um, uh, crop rotation, BT corn and insecticides we needed are what you need to use. Um, your operation is everybody's operation is a little different. So it's a good idea if you need to, to contact extension to talk over what you think you need to do or you know talk to consultants or folks that have a broader and a deep understanding of this pest because it's not simple. Um, the, particularly these days uh, with uh, the different um, transgenics being less than effective, uh, particularly CRY3 containing transgenics being less effective to not, not effective to manage this pest. So corn rootworms, again, are something that you'll want to uh, just keep up on in order to manage them effectively, okay? Now, um, I do want to say that one helpful tool to use is that handy BT trait table, and there's that website to go to. This, it, if you go to that website, not only you see the trait table, but a kind of guide to look at it. It gives the trade names, the events, the proteins, and what they affect, and then it parts it out into all the trait packages. Um, and it even says, uh, you know, where, what it's uh, controls, uh, what it's labeled for, uh, if there's resistance confirmed in it or not. Um, and then you can check your local uh, situation for that. Um, it also has information on the refuge. And so it's kind of a lot of information in just two pages. And I get this every year because I need it. It's too complex to remember. It's a great table. It gets uh, redone every year by uh, Chris Defonso in uh, uh, Michigan and uh, uh, Pat Porter in Texas. And then their Corn Growers Association has information and a nice comprehensive information on this IPM and man best management practices for managing corn rootworm. So I recommend that you go to both of these locations um, in order to really effectively manage rootworm in, <laughs> in the future, now and in the future. Now, um, take home points, basically be aware of resistant status of insects in your area to BT corn hybrids and insecticides and revisit this every year. You may have to modify your management plans every year, tweak it a little bit in order to stay abreast and stay ahead of these insects. And, you know, I'm thinking 
corn rootworm and western bean cutworm right now. Uh, watch for defoliating insects and soybeans. And really it's a species you can vary year to year. So you really kind of need to know more than just what insect it is, but know something about their life cycles so that you can use uh, the defoliation thresholds in the best manner to manage these pests. Remember defoliation is there a lot. You don't always have to management. And then every year is different. So please check CropWatch newsletter for updates in 2021, because that's where we bring out the degree day models for scouting, the degree day models for management, um, new information on BTs and, and insecticides and such.